The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Mary Hendrickson. She's an assistant professor of rural sociology at the University of Missouri-Columbia. She says her passion is making the world a better place through food. She recognizes that the way we produce and consume food has been changing rapidly over the past few decades for both consumers and producers. She also believes that food and agriculture are at the nexus of critical 21st century issues of climate change, water scarcity, hunger, and energy use. Mary grew up on a farm in rural Nebraska and brings her life experience to her work, examining the positive and negative implications of food system changes for farmers, rural communities, the overall environment, and public health. Welcome, Dr. Hendrickson. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I've heard you speak multiple times. I'm familiar with your work in the areas of consolidation and local food promotion. And I wonder if we could just back up a bit and let me ask you, how did you find the field of rural sociology and what is it exactly? It's really funny how I got involved in rural sociology because I went to Morocco when I was 21 years old to visit my brother who was in the Peace Corps. And I came back, and I was working on campus at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln for a USAID project, and I was just an administrative assistant there, and so I was doing all of their transcribing and so on, and I ended up working on this piece where there was a rural sociologist. And I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. I think that's what I want to do. So from there, I did a couple other things, and then I ended up going to school to be a rural sociologist, all because of the rural sociologist that was working on that USAID project. But really what we do is we apply a sociological lens to the issues of rurality, but also to the sociology of food and agriculture. And that means we're looking at how groups work in rural areas in food and agriculture. We are interested in families and policy and economy. So we kind of are interested in the social processes that that happen in food and agriculture or in rural areas that at least those who are rural sociologists like me that study that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you grew up on a farm in Nebraska. Your brother still farms there. When you go back, what do you see that has changed and what does your brother tell you about his biggest challenges? So the thing that I notice the most when I go home, on the farms, I don't see animals. Mm. So where we would have had wintertime right now where people would be grazing cattle and hogs out on the corn stalks after being harvested, there's nothing there. So there are farms in my area that very few farms have any livestock left. So you notice that first. You also notice that the difference between the time when I was, you know, uh, 10 to 15 years old, the places that existed, the rural farm places that existed when I was that age, 
they're no longer there. So you don't see the same amount of farm places as you drive across this landscape. And in Nebraska, since it's laid out in grids, one-mile square grids, it's really easy to like, oh, didn't Kemmler's used to live here or didn't so-and-so used to live here? So that kind of change on the landscape is also really important. And then you notice it. I used to get my hometown paper, and you notice it with the number of students that are in high school. The classes are smaller. The school I grew up in is still unconsolidated, but it does co-op on sports with other schools in the area. So you just kind of notice those kind of of things. Now, what does my brother see? You know, we don't have the same number of crops that we had growing up. When I was growing up, we had maybe six or seven different kinds of crops that we grew. We had cattle, we had hogs, we had sheep on the farm. So we had a very kind of diversified operation. And part of that's because there were four of us kids and we could work on the farm. And so diversified operations, when you have livestock, there's a lot of work with it. So when you have kids that can work on the farm, that's good, right? He doesn't have children, and so it's a little more difficult for him to have livestock. But he also got shot out of the livestock market. So he was too small to sell hogs on just the regular market. So then he ended up selling into niche markets with Nyman Ranch, and now he's kind of backed away from that too, partly because of the labor issues on the farm. So those are, you know, those are just things that I can see in 40 years of of recognizing things on the farm. Mm. I know you're active with the Organization of Competitive Markets, and there's a big emphasis on what kinds of freedom farmers have in terms of finding places to bring their livestock for slaughter and markets in which they can sell their meat. How have you seen this change over the decades since you lived on the farm and now live in and work at a university town? So let me just tell you that when I was a teenager, I hauled hogs for my dad and brothers and me. We would uh, sell hogs at uh, farmland over in uh, Crete, Nebraska, and uh, farmland is now owned by Smithfield, which is Smithfield was a company out of North Carolina, which is now owned by WH Group out of China. But when I took hogs in the 80s to this plant in Crete, Nebraska, I would take a trailer load. We have 22, 23 fat hogs that we'd load up and we'd take over there. And you could back a trailer up and you could let the hogs out and they would go into the plant for slaughter. You cannot do that now. You have to have 200 pigs at a time, at a minimum, ready to slaughter all at the same time. Well, it's not very easy to get 200 pigs ready for slaughter all at the same time. So that means that you're going to have to have about 10 times more sows than we had, right, on the farm. So you're going to start looking at having six, 700 sows, but most farmers now don't even farrow out their pigs and then finish them like we did. Most the hog industry is very segregated, so there are farmers who specialize in, in farrowing out pigs, and then there are farmers who specialize in, in growing pigs from very tiny babies. So the industry has changed a great deal, but it's just 
it's a very different thing to take 20 hogs at a time versus to take 200 hogs at a time. And what that tells you is that the industry has grown, that the smaller players in the industry are not there and they don't take the smaller numbers of animals that smaller farm sizes would produce. So are there options for small farmers? And I'll just give you an example. I feel so blessed to be able to buy my pork from a small family farm. They bring their hogs to a local slaughterhouse and we go and we pick up the meat. Are those kinds of slaughterhouse facilities becoming fewer and not available to the small farmer? And how did that happen? Well, we really have a bifurcated system right now. So we have a system where people might produce, you know, say 10 fat hogs a year or 50 fat hogs a year, and they could sell those locally to different folks. You know, maybe they even do like 75 or 100. But once you get beyond that number, it's very difficult to find uh, plants that can slaughter or ways to market uh, collectively into larger plants. So the if you're slaughtering, if you're doing it like your your farmer is doing it, you work with a local slaughter plant. And those local plants are usually USDA inspected. They might be inspected, state inspected, but those conform to the same kind of uh, regulations. But those plants make their money on deer season. When mm. everybody brings, and they close down during deer season, so farmers have to work around that. But that's where they make their money. There's just a few of those plants left. We, I think, I don't remember, I think we have maybe 90 to 100 left in the state of Missouri. I'm not exactly sure on those, on those figures. And then you get these very large plants that maybe do 5,000, 6,000 animals a day or more. Probably that's on the low side for hogs, actually. So you don't have anything in the middle, right? Yeah. So you that's we see that as a big issue in agriculture right now is that we do have some flourishing markets, local markets for people that are selling at farmers markets and so on. But then once you try to go up to get a little bit of economies of scale because really there there are some economies of scale in a little bit larger operation. Not huge, but a little bit larger. And if you're going to try to sell into grocery stores, if you're going to try to uh, make sure that fresh pork is available, you're going to have to start thinking about scaling up. And then it's a wasteland. <laughs> it's like wow. there's none of that mid-sized infrastructure left. And that's really interesting because there are, you know, the labor unions talk about this, like, Labor unions used to be organized in lots of these smaller packing plants that were scattered across the Midwest. Those packing plants are gone, and we see very large-scale kinds of packing plants. And the thing about it is, is when you butcher your animals in one of our smaller, you know, one of those hundreds that I was just talking about, it's going to cost you, like one of our beef producers here in Columbia, it costs him maybe $400 maybe maybe a little more to get his animal slaughtered it can some of those larger guys can sell off the blood is used in research it's used in making artificial blood for for human beings it's 
hides can be, uh, you can use a hide puller, you can use, um, those hides can be sold for, um, into the automobile manufacturing chains, but you can only do that if you're larger. Once you get larger and you can make money off of what we would consider not useful products that these smaller guys actually have to pay to get rid of, wow. you change totally the cost involved, right, mm-hmm. in the cost per pound. So those kinds of things are really important, and it happens across the food system, right? So if you want to take my little town in Nebraska again, how do you keep a grocery store open in a small town, right? right. Because now that you have Walmart selling 30% probably of groceries in the country, they have their own systems. They have their own distribution systems, their own storage systems, and so on. So they're not buying from a grocery distributor like we used to have. So those smaller stores have to figure out who they're going to buy from to stock their grocery stores. And so for really, for some of these rural areas and inner city stores that are smaller square foot-wise, they don't have the distribution system to back them up. So really, when I think about consolidation issues, I'm particularly concerned about what's happening in the middle. What's happening to farmers in the middle? What's happening to processors in the middle? What's happening to distributors in the middle? This is really the place where I'm concerned. Yeah. Let me take one moment and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Mary Hendrickson, Assistant Professor of Rural Sociology at the University of Missouri, and you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. Well, I want to then talk about what not having anything in the middle means for consumer choice. We go into a supermarket, we think, I like to talk about it in terms of illusions of choice, But it would appear to the untrained eye that if you go into any supermarket, there is an abundance of food choice. But in looking at some of the work that you've done with regard to who owns what, really, we have lots of different brands, but we don't have a lot of choice. What's going on here? Well, for the consumers, if you are uh, shopping, if if you're shopping at Walmart or one of the other large food retailers, and really you've got Walmart you, in, in the traditional arena, you've got Kroger stores, you've got Target, you've got some of those are the largest. They control most of the grocery sales or, or a great deal of the grocery sales. But they will only stock a certain kind of range of of products, right? Because they're interested in efficiency. They're interested in shaving costs off in their distribution system. And so it doesn't work for them to have a wide variety of different kinds of, of different products. So, you know, maybe it's five Snapple flavors and not 15. So who cares? Do you really need 15 Snapple flavors? Yeah. If there are 15, but but then you start to drill down on what that means. Like, what does that mean in terms of what kinds of eggplants are there and what kinds of tomatoes are there? And what does that mean for the genetic diversity that might be lost in those choices that the, you know, the Walmart stores make? Well, when they make a, a choice about what's happening on their store shelves, 
then they drive a lot of other choices in the industry because other people are like, well, you know, that's one of our biggest customers, so I guess we'll I guess we'll give up growing this little this other little eggplant and we'll just focus on the eggplants that Walmart wants. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that Walmart is the big, we should focus all our attention on, oh, my gosh, they're a terrible, terrible company. I'm just saying that this is the, this is what happens when you start to have such powerful actors and actors that accumulate so much power. Other actors lose the opportunities for choice, lose the opportunities to make their own decisions. Yeah, and one would think that efficiency would be a good thing, but... I'm thinking now, after hearing you describe the situation, that efficiency might not be so good for resiliency. And I wonder if you could talk about resiliency in food systems and what that looks like. Sure. So one of the things that we're interested in is how well does a system weather shocks, right? And so we often think about resiliency and its ability to whether, you know, to reduce vulnerabilities and to weather any kinds of shocks that might come. And so when you start to look at the global food system and you start to say, wow, we're kind of dependent on the same few grain crops, on the same few vegetable crops, on the same few uh, livestock breeds, and because that's the ones that are going, you know, they're the, the in livestock, it's the it's the animals that gain the most on the least feed, right? So we're like that breed, and we're going to keep that breed. And we kind of ignore some of these other genetics that were, you know, developed for particular kinds of ecosystems, right? So then what happens if we have a disease or a pathogen that comes in, and we might need a better gene pool or a more diverse gene pool, across the globe or across the United States. Also, when we depend on certain kinds of grain crops or certain kinds of of vegetable crops, we tend to concentrate them in the places, in particular places. So it becomes spinach out in, in Northern California. And we know that in 10 years ago, we saw the um, outbreak of E. coli and spinach. Well, part of that happened likely because we concentrated spinach production and handling uh, facilities and we just had large operations in that particular place and we're like, oh, wow, this is really efficient, yet it also makes you more vulnerable because all your eggs are in one basket, so to speak, right? right? And if there's a drought, if there's a fire, if there's a pathogen, all your eggs are in this one basket. And that's not something we – resilience might actually uh, depend a lot on redundancy. And redundancy isn't really the goal of efficient systems. Right. right? <laughs> um, and so it's a little bit counterintuitive, but what we would like to have is more, in my opinion, a more resilient food system is going to be a more diverse food system that depends upon multiple places of production, multiple different kinds of genetic pools, multiple uh, ways of distribution. It's going to look different across the globe, and it's going to be that kind of system is going to be able to better adapt over time to particular places 
and to particular events. And so climate change is really concerns me a great deal because things are happening happening very rapidly, but we aren't thinking about what kinds of crops would go well in these particular places or what are some native gene pools that might be better adapted to particular kinds of things. So I think these are all issues that the consumer, we don't think about when we go to the grocery store, right? Right. Like, oh, let's just buy that pepper. It looks good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you and I had a chance to be on a panel together, and I, I really enjoyed hearing your particular presentation and especially watching the audience reaction because you are steeped in this information. But when you explained that the bacon that they had on their breakfast buffet likely came from one of four producers, I'm not sure the audience recognized why that was a red flag. Right, right. Because for all these very, you know, the social resiliency, the economic resiliency, and the ecological resiliency, and we have to think about those as really intertwined systems. And so when we displace agriculture in lots of different places around the globe, that leads to um, changes in social patterns, right? Mm -hmm. And that can change where people might immigrate to or immigrate from, right? I mean, there's a lot of consequences to changing some of these systems. And efficiency shouldn't always be our goal, I believe. Right. So that leads us to policy changes and how do we best craft a more resilient system? And we are looking at the Farm Bill. What policies would you like to see instated to give life again to the rural communities to bring perhaps smaller, more diversified farms back into those places and to create real community again? Well, I think that we're not going to just see that happen in the farm bill, right? Right. Because the farm bill is really important. I don't want to downplay the importance of the farm bill, but also there are other policies that have impacts, right? And one of the policies that's had a lot of impact on the shape of rural America and frankly, the shape of um, our national economy is changes in our interpretation of what we call antitrust law or competition policy, right? Mm-hmm. So how we understand if big big actors are really helpful in a marketplace or not. And my argument is, is that markets really need to be very competitive markets. We're not, we're no one player has the ability to influence the price of what's being sold or the or the um of of anything in that particular marketplace. No one actor has the ability to influence things. And we're not seeing that right now in the poultry industry, in the pork industry, in the beef industry, all of which are, you know, well above forty percent concentration in sales among the top four firms in that particular sector. So that's, I think that competition policy can be a really important place. And we, you know, it's not just in food that that's important, but also in in book sales, in, right. in furniture sales and so on, because 
really competition in the marketplace provides a lot of benefits for communities. It provides a lot of benefits for workers. It provides a lot of benefits for consumers and producers. And those are the important benefits. And really that's what the whole uh, movement in the prairie populist movement was really about is like, you know, we don't, we're not talking about just individual actors, but we embrace this idea that we really need to have a wide diversity of people involved, of, of actors involved in the, in the marketplace because it's good for our communities, it's good for our workers and so on. So those are really important aspects of policy. Right now we have interpreted antitrust policy to be whatever, if the consumer pays a lower price, we don't care. Right, mm-hmm. as long as that, as long as that iPhone doesn't cost too much, we don't care. As long as that Pepsi doesn't cost too much, we don't care. But that's not really what antitrust is all about. So I think competition policy is a really important place in the farm bill itself. I think that we really need to make sure that we protect conservation funding because conservation funding can be really important agroecologically. But managing farms in an agroecological fashion means that we might have more eyes on the land. If we have more eyes on the land, we probably have more people in our communities. Right. Then we need to think about also like that um, the research for public breeds and public seeds. Those are really important aspects um, that can be part of the farm bill in terms of making sure that we have genetic diversity that's available to everybody. And it's not tied up in patents held by the largest players. That's really important as well. All right. So you've got an audience of people who care about what they eat and they want to participate to make positive change. Are there certain places you would direct our listeners to learn more, to get involved, to have a a talking point to bring to a legislature? So I think that the folks at the National, the Sustainable Agriculture Coalition on sustainableagriculture.net, Food and Water Watch does a really good job of looking at a lot of these issues. For information, I have a lot of information on my own personal website, maryhendrickson.wordpress.com, and there folks can actually get like the data that can inform some of their, their policy asks that they can get from those other organizations. This has been really fascinating. And Open Markets Institute is also a great, great, important place for uh, competition policy. Well, I'll make sure to have links to all of those sources. This has been really interesting. Is there anything, we just have a minute left, is there anything that you want to say that I neglected to bring forth in our conversation? No, I just think, I hope people think about all the implications of their food, what who, on who produced that food, how was it produced, where did it come from, who was involved in the labor of, of uh, bringing it to your table, and really think consciously about all the implications, the social, ecological, and economic implications of those choices. Mm-hmm. Well, Mary, I want to thank you so very much for being my guest. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We have been speaking with Dr. Mary Hendrickson, Assistant Professor of Rural Sociology at the University of Missouri-Columbia. Her work focuses on the social, 
Economic and Ecological Impacts of Different Types of Food Systems. She also teaches courses on sustainable food and farming systems. And Mary, I agree with you that we are at this critical nexus where food and agriculture must be high on our agenda, especially as we face climate change. And I just want to let our listeners know that climate change has been termed a medical emergency. So we have to work together moving forward. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.